All right. Well, certainly good morning to you. Thank you again for spending this morning with us. Uh, Again, welcome to Providence. So thankful to have all of you here. A special welcome again to guests and visitors joining us this morning. And as always, a special welcome to those of you joining us via the live stream this morning as well. So glad to have you. We're going to be continuing in a teaching series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to go on and open it up and make your way over to the Gospel of John. That's in the New Testament, also known as the right part of your Bible. And you are looking for a book with the word John, um, spelled just how it sounds at the top of the page. We are going to be in chapter 1. That's the large number uh, that you'll see as you're thumbing around. And this morning, we're going to study verses 19 to 34. So, John 1, verses 19 to 34. As you're making your way there... Um, By way of uh, reminder to those of us who are forgetful and uh, just by way of informing um, to those of us us who are uh, here for the first time this morning, we've been going through a teaching series through the Gospel of John called Fully Alive, where we believe the purpose statement that the author of this book, he gave us at the end of the book, is that everything that we have in this wonderful book has been specifically chosen for us so that we may see who Jesus is and we may have life in him. Now, over the last couple of weeks, it has been a particularly exciting season for us at Providence as Brian Frost has been preaching this good word to us. And I don't know about you, have you been enjoying this? Let's, let's make some noise this morning for that. Come on. Brian Frost, absolutely crushing it. God's hand is in this. So excited about where we are uh, for sure. And we've been uh, trying to memorize um, a lot of this book as well. In fact, there are some great resources um, that we have available for you. If uh, you haven't picked up a bookmark, um, there's some other things out there. You can just make your way um, right across the lobby to next steps as soon as we're done. And of the many things we're trying to do as we study the Gospel of John is memorize parts of it. And we have a new memory verse that we're going to start to work on this week. And um, it'll come up on the screen in just a moment. Let's uh, just take a moment to read this out loud together. So everybody now. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a wonderful word for us. So this morning, we're looking into John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And let's just pause and ask that God would speak to us from his word. Friend, ask that God would speak to you in this moment from his word. God, we come to you humbly this morning as needy people. Lots of problems in our lives, lots of needs, lots of issues, and you are the all-sufficient one. You never run out, you never give out. Your steadfast love endures forever. And while we woke up with lots of little holes in our lives this morning, you had loads of mercy to meet us. You are great. And God, we simply ask that you would be kind to speak to us from your word. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 19. I'll read. You tag along. Here we go. And this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him again, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Friend, if we were to hang a banner over this message today, the banner would read like this. God desires to build a community of witnesses to spread his glory. If, if we're to think for a moment, right, just to get a little bit of a framework as we approach this text, man, what, what is God up to in the world? Because we're really not going to understand this text unless we understand what he's up to in the world and his bigger program. So consider a few things with me. God's desire, which he will fulfill, is in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth to be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. God's desire, God's plan, God's purpose, God's mission is to fill the earth with knowledge about who he is. And this isn't a plan that he just came up with once the humans sinned. This is a plan that God had in the garden before humanity ever did anything wrong. This is why God's first word to his people in Genesis 1.28 is to be fruitful and multiply. For worshipers of God to multiply and to fill the earth. Well, how does God go about helping us do this for him? Is this something that he intends for you and me to figure out on our own? Does he just give us a big burden and give us a big task and then just hope we can figure it out? No. Humanity sins against God and God does something incredible. God starts a sacrifice system. God starts a system whereby his people can be made right with him. And by way of different sacrifices, most of the time animal sacrifices, specifically sacrifices of spotless lambs, God institutes a system whereby his people can trust in the shed blood of an animal 
and have their sins covered. This is the scarlet thread running all throughout the Bible, and the thread ends in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He willingly and lovingly died in the place of people, you and me, who don't deserve it. And God gave his life. In Jesus, God gave his life for us that then we might live our lives for him. This is why when Jesus resurrected from the dead, Jesus went to his people and he reminded them of the plan. We think of it as the Great Commission, but when you really look at Scripture and what's happening all throughout the Old Testament, it's really nothing new at all. He goes to his people and he reminds them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You who love me, you who follow me, you go multiply in the earth. Teaching people to obey everything that I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And remember, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. Think about it. God looking at his people, looking at his church, looking at his witnesses and saying, listen, you know the plan. Multiply, reproduce, and spread out and fill the earth. Very specifically, Jesus said it in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's idea. This is God's big plan that he is building a community to be his witnesses in the world. And think about this with me. You and I would not even be here in this moment today if God and the history of the church wasn't faithful to hold to the plan. We wouldn't be here if God wasn't faithful to do what he said he was going to do. So this is what's incredible. The book of John was written for the church it's written for us so that we may see Jesus and have life. It's also written for the world so the world may see Jesus in this book and have life. And this book where everything was specifically chosen so that we may be able to see Jesus and live in the way that Jesus wants to live in the world. This church that God is forming, this community of witnesses, we come to this book and we open it up, and as we start to turn to the first page of John, the church that knows we have been called, we've been entrusted with being God's witnesses in the world, wouldn't you know it? But the very first person besides Jesus we encounter in this book is who Jesus said is the greatest witness who ever lived. We're talking about John the Baptist. And yeah, there's a distinction between John the author and John the Baptist. I'm talking about John B. all morning long today. We're talking about John the Baptist to help us believe and have a full life. We're given this portrait of a man. This isn't just any old man. This is a man whom Jesus loved. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, listen, y'all, there's been no one born of a woman, right? Next to me, this guy is it, he says, better than Cam Newton and better than Peyton Manning. This guy's it, y'all. Say, he's got it. 
This guy had an incredible resume. He had an incredible pedigree. But what's incredible about it is he didn't let it go to his head. And he lived a life for God. He's a witness. And we've seen, we see some things about him. Would you look up with me in, in John 1 verses 6 through 8? Just read this with me. We've seen glimpses of this man before, but we're really about to study him for the next few minutes. The author says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a what? Witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Look down at verse 34, the last thing we're going to see this morning. John says, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Church, how incredible is this? God is calling us to be his witnesses and he doesn't leave us without ideas about what that ought to look like. So for the next few moments, I want to do what I believe scripture does. And that's hold up this portrait of John the Baptist for you. And I want us to look into this portrait of who God holds up to us as, man, this guy was an incredible witness for me. But hear me, and this is the warning label on this message. It would be a misunderstanding for us to leave this place thinking, man, I need to go and be like John the Baptist. Because that's not the point that scripture makes. Instead, the thrust in this message, the thrust from scripture is not look at this guy and go and be like him. The point is look at the kind of person that God is forming to be his representative in the world. And as we look into this portrait, I imagine we're a lot alike and you're gonna see things in this portrait you're gonna recognize in your own life as we're all looking into it together. Man, I'm not there. And for that, there is nothing but grace and mercy to help us find the way. So John the Baptist, we've seen some things about him before. He's, a, he's at the beginning of all four gospels. He's kind of like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's kind of like um, the last root coming up out of the ground of God's work in the Old Testament before it goes up into Jesus and produces all of this fruit in the New Testament John's kind of like a root. He's kind of like that last seam between everything down here and everything up there. He's a prophet, so he's a witness and a prophet. He's kind of like Elijah. He's, a vo- he's, a, he's like a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Hey, listen, look at what God is doing. Look at the tree. He's a witness. We've seen him. He's in verses 6 and 8. He got a running start. Verse 15 takes another bound. And in 19, he launches. And as we get a look at him, I want you to notice how brief the look is going to be. We're going to see him for a little while. He'll appear once or twice more. And then he'll be gone. Because that's the nature of what it means to be a witness. Witnesses are not the point. We are. Or pointers to the point, Jesus. So holding up this portrait, first thing I want you to see is this. Witnesses have a humble view of themselves. Witnesses have a humble view of themselves. This is what you see in verses 19 to 28. The religious leaders approach. They approach because they see this guy and he's flat out different. They don't know what to do with him. 
He doesn't sound like anybody or talk like anybody they usually run with. This life of distinction is starting to come through here for us. And by the grace of God, we learn that John the Baptist realized that God was sending Jesus Christ to be the Savior. And when you get that, that leads to a humble view of yourself. But it wasn't without trying. It wasn't without the world working on him. I'm trying to figure out, man, who are you? What are you about? Look at them question John in verses, John the Baptist in verses 19, 21, 22, and 25. Who are you? What is this? What is your message? What are you about? Because we don't know what to do with you. And his message, to sum it all up, his message is simple. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He had a humble view of himself, but notice what a humble view of yourself looks like. He knew he was not worthy, but at the same time, he knew he was not worthless. You see, we misjudge life in one of two ways. One way to misjudge life is to make way too much of ourselves. We just get drunk on pride and we're just obnoxious people and we're terrible to be around. But the other way we misjudge life, the other non-biblical view of life is we make far too little of our lives. We think far too less of ourselves. And consider how this works. If anyone had a resume, this guy did. I mean, if you thumb around the other gospels and you read the first few pages, you see this guy, this guy had a resume. This guy had a dad who had status and he had everything to his name. He could have come up to the Pharisees and they could have been asking him all kinds of questions and he could have whipped them once or twice and he could have mouthed off at him, but he doesn't. He knew he wasn't worthy. Led to this simple message. Listen, guys, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's humility, right? And I th- humility is a tough line to actually get on. In a sense, it's kind of like a tightrope. We can fall off on one or two sides. But I love what C.S. Lewis says. True humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself Less. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? This is John the Baptist, isn't it? This is the man. This is the man with the incredible resume and the incredible pedigree confronted by all the religious leaders. And he didn't draw attention to himself once. He didn't say, Yeah, you're right, man. I went to a really good school. Can't you tell? Right? Say, Yeah, yeah, you're right, man. I, I do come from a family. This is kind of cool. He doesn't do that. He knew he was not worthy. At the same time, he knew he was not worthless. Notice how his answers constantly deflect attention to God. And in deflecting attention to God, he realizes, man, even though I don't deserve to be used by God, even though I don't deserve what God is doing in the world through Jesus, man, I'm glad to be a part of it. Look at verse 19. They ask the question, who are you? He says, I'm like a voice of one crying in the wilderness. God has a plan. Consider God's plans right there in verse 23. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, Isaiah promised not only that he would send the savior, but he'd send one to be the forerunner. Don't think car, think person to run ahead of Jesus and to tell people about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in the world. God prophesied that he would do this. 
And John the Baptist, he found his identity, not in his past, not in his experiences, not in his family, but in the fact that he had a role to play in God's plan as a witness. It's in verse 25 as well. Another question comes, why are you baptizing? Baptism, this practice that arose between the story of Israel and the story of Jesus, was a, was a way that people would go out into the world and they would actively wash as a sign of the inward spiritual renewal that they wished God would bring. And John's like, listen, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing baptism, but this is almost surface. This isn't, this isn't as deep as it could be. This is almost a parable compared to what's coming in Jesus because Jesus is going to come and he's going to give that soul baptism you're really looking for. And this is why I'm glad Brian has it and not me. We're probably going to be studying baptism in the Holy Spirit next week. So show up for that. But again, his message is the same. It's not about me. It's about him. Don't you see? He, he, he knows he's not worthy. Oh, look at me. But he knows he's not worthless. No, no, no. He's doing something. He's using me in it. And it's in verses 29 to 30. The main reason why the king of glory came is to take away our sins. John knew that Jesus ranked above him. He knew that Jesus was before him, but he knew that Jesus wanted to use him. This is it. Don't you see a humble view of yourself? Witnesses have, you see it in the portrait, a humble view of yourself. You know you're not worthy, but at the same time, you know you're not worthless. We know we don't deserve the salvation that God brings, but at the same time, We know our lives matter because God wants to use us in his plan and program in the world. So just summary here, John the Baptist, like finding your real identity, John the Baptist understood what God was doing in the world. He didn't find his worth in anything he ever said or did or where he came from. He found his worth in the fact that God wanted to use his life to accomplish things for the mission. Second thing that we see right here in this text, not only did do witnesses have a humble view of themselves, but witnesses have a high view of God. Right here in verses 29 to 34. To have this humble view, you have to have a high view. You don't just get this humble view on your own. Instead, John had this humble view because he first had a high view of God. He saw God as great. He saw God as huge, as mighty, as consequential. And there are a couple ways that we can discern from this text that he saw it. First, he knew that God kept his promises. You don't get to the point that John gets to in verse 29 when you look at Jesus and you say, behold, that's the lamb, that's the one we've been looking for. You don't get there unless you first believe that God has a plan and God is keeping promises in step with the plan. He knew God was keeping his promises. He knew promises from Genesis 3.15. As soon as humanity sinned in the world, God came to his people. He said, listen, it's not always going to be like this. I'm going to straighten this out eventually. Y'all need to get out of here because I can't dwell with sin anymore. You need to go, but things are going to be the same eventually. John, who knew the Old Testament scriptures, probably following the scarlet thread going throughout the Bible, Seeing, man, God has this plan. He's going to cover our sins. So he reads the Old Testament and he's thinking, it's not the Old Testament him, it's kind of like the Bible, not even Old Testament, like Old Testament 1.0. He's reading this thing and he's like, wow, in the Old Testament, God told people before the Exodus, he's going to judge them for their wickedness. 
He says, you need to go get a lamb. You need to get a spotless lamb. You need to bring that thing into your house. You need to love on it for three days. Then pops, you've got to take it out and kill it. Hang the blood over the door. And if you hide under the blood of the lamb, when I come through in judgment, I will pass over you. A theme, it just runs all throughout the Bible. A scarlet thread that's being traced all throughout the narrative. John had a high view of God because he realized that God's going to keep his promises. Promises like Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and his commandments to a thousand generations. High view of God. Realize that God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. He also knew that Jesus was the sin substitute. And do you, how do you hear verse 29? Would you, would you just look at it with me again? Like how, how does this go off in your mind? Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I mean, is that how it sounds? I mean, no one had been able to put together all the pieces all throughout history. We have bits and pieces of the story. We have that story from the Exodus. We have prophecies about this one from Isaiah. Thinking about Isaiah, by his stripes we will be healed like a lamb before the shears. He did not open his mouth. Can you imagine this moment? Through all of history, no one was able to put the pieces together. And then one day, this humble prophet with the high view of God, by the grace of God, he gets it. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is him. He's, he's here. Can you imagine that moment? Do you remember that moment? When you realize Jesus is the Lamb. He's the substitute. He's going to stand in my place and he's going to take what I deserve. Do you remember the moment that you realized that, Christian? Jesus is the substitute. He's the sinless substitute. John also wrote a letter to the church. 1 John 3 verse 5 says, You know that he appeared to take away the sins of the world. Take away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, sins simply got covered. In the New Testament, through Jesus, sins get taken away. And they were taken away because in him there was no reason. There was no sin. The reason the son appeared was to take away the sin. And the only one qualified to take away the sin is someone who doesn't have the sin. Written to the church. Church, remember, he appeared and he took the sin away. How did he take the sin away? Because he didn't have any. Comfort for our souls. Comfort for my heart. I have so much sin. I have so many things. Comfort. He came to take it away and he took it away because he has no sin. That's the whole campaign of John's message. That's what he's all about. And not only all of this, he knew Jesus was the sin substitute, but he knew Jesus was the voluntary sin substitute. You know what's incredible about sheep? I speak to you as an expert this morning. Um, what's incredible about sheep 
is when it comes time to kill a sheep, sheep will not buck in any way. They will look right at you and allow you to take their life. And Jesus was the voluntary substitute lamb. He could have asked out. He could have requested another way. In the garden, when all of this was getting so real for him, he prays, Father, if there's another way, if we can run this differently, would you let this cup pass from me? And he chose to stay. He could have gotten up. He could have walked away. He could have gone back to heaven. But he didn't because Jesus chose to die. He chose to give his life. He chose like a lamb to be killed for the sins of the world. And in all of this, right, John, I mean, this witness, John the Baptist, he has a high view of God because he he sees God kept his promises. He perceives in the moment Jesus is the sin substitute, but he also perceives in this moment that the spirit would empower the church for mission. Think about it. In verse 32, as a witness, he testifies because he saw the spirit descend on Jesus. And isn't this really the Christian life? God God shows himself to us and we just act on what we know. We act on what we learn from God. Isn't this model of this witness really like ideal for all of us? God revealed something true about himself to him and he just trusted God and just acted on it in faith in the world. So in verse 29, it gets him to the point where he's like, listen, guys, I know you've been listening to me for a while. That's the lamb. Behold the lamb. And he repeats it a few verses later in verses 35 to 36. And it had the intended effect that his followers left him. And that's the point of being a witness is that you're ultimately a pointer to Jesus. So as we live our lives in this city, we just remember as we're going to try to get some people around us and we're going to try to make disciples and we're going to try to engage people who we love and share the gospel with them, share the news about how judgment's coming. But before judgment, he's provided a way of escape if you simply trust in it. As we do all of this, we're going to remember and we're going to know this isn't about us. And there's a deep lesson in here. There's a deep lesson for those of us who are looking for someone to take away the sins of the world. The lesson is for us never to be fooled and never to be distracted. That anyone or anything other than Jesus is qualified or capable to take away the sins of the world. So this witness, right, we're looking into a portrait. This witness had a humble view of himself because he had a high view of God. And this led to something that you'll see develop in the next couple of weeks, maybe months, and then he'll be gone. Witnesses have a death-defying confidence. Three things to notice from his life. John the Baptist was approachable. Do you notice how people can walk right up to him? With all of his knowledge, with all of his skill, with all of his expertise, people walked right up to him and started a conversation. And people who misjudge life are usually hard to talk to, aren't they? People who are proud seem unapproachable. People who think too little of their lives seem untouchable. But this one was approachable. 
you could walk right up to him and have a conversation. You could talk to him because he didn't get too high on himself and he didn't get too low on his mistakes because he knew God. He knew God. He knew, I'm not the guy, but God's the guy and he has a plan for my life and he's using me in the world. And he was approachable because he had a humble view of himself and he had a high view of God. Notice, he was also truthful. The essence of being a witness is that we witness Look at him, so truthful, like so forthright. He's, he's loving, but he's full of truth, a lot like Jesus, full of grace and truth. He's confessing, he's testifying, regardless of the consequences. His goal is to accurately represent God. And I think most inspiring from this picture of John the Baptist and what God is creating in him for us to see and be encouraged with this morning is that he was fearless. Think about this. In his view of himself, he was quiet. It's not about me. And in his view of Jesus, he was loud. There he is, guys. He's right there. And he was fearless. And you're going to see him. He's going to show up a couple more times throughout the narrative. You're going to see him talking to everyone and anyone who has a question about God. He's loving. He wants people to love God, wants people to believe in God. But man, he is resilient. It doesn't matter what the world comes at him with. He knows who he is. So he's not going to get too high. He's not going to get too low. He's going to stay focused on God. And he's going to stay on task, on point, on theme, on message. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. So whatever happens to him, he's not scared of the consequences. And don't miss it, friend. This is a portrait, right? We're seeing this and the intended effect is that we see it and we're like, I'm not there. I don't have that. And for that, we have verse 29 as an invitation. Behold the Lamb of God. Yeah, look at John the Baptist. Look at the guy who walks right up to the king and he says, listen, Herod, I know what you're doing with that girl and God doesn't like it. And Herod had him beheaded for it. His his boldness led to a beheading. He was fearless. And as we see this and we're like, I'm just, I'm not there. Like I'm raking leaves and I'm scared to talk to my neighbor. I'm not there. Behold the lamb of God. For your life and for my life, for all the deficiencies that we feel and for all the things that we see in ourselves where we're like, yeah, I know I'm not there. I know I'm not this that God's creating in the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Look to him and in looking to him, he will transform you from one degree of glory to the next and he will make you not into the image of John the Baptist. He will make you into the image of Jesus. But the question remains, no doubt, some of us, we think, we wrestle. If, if, if even we believe we have the flashing doubt, what would ever make me want to give my life for God? What would ever make me want to give my resources and my time and my energy for him? The answer is found and seen that God doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't first do for us. You see, the gospel isn't God coming to people and saying, your life for mine. The gospel is God coming to people and saying, my life for yours. 
the gospel isn't God coming to us and saying, listen, y'all, y'all just need to submit. Y'all just need to figure this out. Y'all just need to suck it up and just learn to do what I'm telling you in the world. The gospel is God coming to his people and saying, this is how much I love you. And he willingly lays down his life for us. So why would we ever give our lives for God if called upon? Why would we ever give of our resources and our time and our energy and show up and to be a part of this thing? Because God has already gone before us and done it all for us. It simply makes sense now for his community of witnesses to behold the lamb, to trust that he will work in us to move us from degree to degree along the process as we join him in what he's doing. Now, in addition to that, we have a great privilege this morning. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We get to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. So our deacons and elders are gonna make their way up right now. And as they're coming up to serve us, I just wanna focus your attention on the table. And I want you to think about the great privilege that we have You see, the Passover that I told you about in the Old Testament when God looked at a wicked city and he said, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge this city for their sin. See, God isn't just a God of judgment. He's a God of love and mercy and grace. So he provided a way out. He went to the people and he said, listen, if you were to take a lamb and if you were to kill it, put the blood over the doorpost When I come through in judgment, I will spare everyone hiding beneath the blood of the lamb. And God then instituted a meal that his church would take, his people would take. They would do this to remember, man, that was close. God provided a way out like he loves us. And he's made a way out that the rest of the world needs to hear about. And God's people would celebrate this meal for centuries And then one night, the night before Jesus gave his life to be betrayed, Jesus was sharing this meal with his followers. And you had everything there. You had the bread, you had the wine, and you had the lamb of remembrance. Except the lamb wasn't on the table because the lamb was seated at the table. And Jesus transformed the meal that was built way back in the Old Testament as a pointer to that night. You see, every Passover meal leading up to that moment was intended to be the pointer to the moment when we would realize once and for all, this is what it's all about. And Jesus transformed something that we've had for so long and we've held so dear. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, friends, this is going to be my body for you. I am the sacrificial lamb. I'm going to give my life for you. And then he took the wine and he said, this represents my blood. And I'm going to willingly pour it out so yours can be spared. And it's a meal of celebration. And this morning, you and I, we get to celebrate together what God has done for us in Jesus. And it comes with the caution. It comes with the caution that this meal is for followers of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you're hearing this message, you're like, well, I think of the lamb, but I've never really beheld the lamb in a way that's dear to me, then you need to allow the passing of these plates across the room in the next few moments to drive your soul to God. And just let it pass and come talk to one of these brothers. Talk to me afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about who Jesus is and how you can know him and follow him in a personal way. This is a meal for
for the family. And the night that Jesus shared the meal, he first gave thanks. This morning, a brother will do that for us as well.